What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today we are talking with musician, singer-songwriter Tim McElrath. Now, many of you know Tim as a founding member of the punk rock band Rise Against. Rise Against is known for being very outspoken on a range of social justice issues such as animal rights and environmentalism. Many people consider their 2004 album, Siren Song of the Counterculture, to be one of the best punk rock albums of all time, and particularly one of the best political punk rock albums of all time. And Rise Against has a new album out June 4th called Nowhere Generation that you can pre-order now. And one of the themes of the Nowhere Generation album is how we are currently living in a world in which the social, legal, economic, and political systems do not necessarily work the same for everyone. There are intense disparities that exist in this world for people based on race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, and economic resources. So not everyone gets the same access to education, health care, job opportunities, healthy food and clean air, among other things. And this is not just some vague political or moral issue. These disparities translate into people not having equal opportunity to lead a healthy, fulfilling, and authentic life. And this is not only painful and harmful to the individuals who are denied these opportunities, but also to all of us as a society in that we don't all get the benefits of other people's success. That person who could have lived a longer, healthier, and happier life could have been a better neighbor, friend, spouse, doctor, engineer, whatever. We don't get that person in the same way in our lives. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, one of our goals is to help people identify and overcome the barriers they face to achieving their purpose in life. And it is a core principle of humanism and humanistic psychology that all people have value. And it is our job as individuals and as a society to help people realize their potential in life. So the question is, when we face these type of disparities and we see that there are systems in place that interfere with our ability and the ability of others to achieve their purpose in life, what do we do? And one of the things that I really liked about how Tim framed this issue is that he essentially talked about addressing this issue on two fronts. The first is the concept of agency, empowering people to find their purpose in life and work to achieve it no matter what obstacles they face. This is a very core tenet of punk rock, the idea that our ideas, hopes, and dreams matter, even if we are marginalized in some way. And the second front Tim talks about is taking on the system, identifying and challenging the structures that exist that interfere with people having the support and opportunities they need to live the lives they want. And what's particularly important is that we can do both. We can work within the system to find the agency to build the life we want, and work to change the system and the structures that hold us and others back. So let's hear what Tim has to say. Tim, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you are getting into, in your music and in your life and in activism, an area that that I find very very, very both important and disturbing, you know, because here with Hardcore Humanism, our idea is how do you identify your purpose? How do you work hard to achieve it? How do you build a community around it? And in theory, what I believe is that that will get you closer and make it more likely that you'll achieve your outcomes. But there are assumptions around that, which is that 
the world somehow will be fair. The world will reward you for what it is that you do. And as you point out in your music and in a lot of the things that you've described, that's not always true. And you've used the term nowhere generation to describe that phenomenon. And so the first thing that I think we would talk about is what are you seeing on a systemic level that is interrupting people's ability to get what they want in their life? Mm, that's a great question. Um, what am I seeing on a systemic level that's interrupting people from getting what they want in life? So I think that that comes down to the institutions that, that we're sort of corralled into um, every day. And that can be political institutions, economic institutions, social institutions. I think that probably some of the more glaring examples that we would be seeing in today's world, people will be watching the unprecedented uh, rise of concentrated wealth, you know, in this country or in the world, really. And so that's something that is we see happening and we see it happening at these sort of unprecedented levels and it becomes unique to this time period you know in history and that's something that i think young people are being forced to look at deal with and then ask themselves how is this affecting me and my life and if there are systems put in place to actually actively concentrate wealth at you know then if someone's being advantaged then someone else is being disadvantaged you know and so where does that play and so you're seeing that that's causing the rise of the 1%, you know, or the, the or even the point the point oh one of the 1%, you know, just this astronomical numbers. And I think when you when you see things like that happening, you you create this uh, a generation of people who are have a lot of questions about oh where's my role in that then or how does this system work or should I be questioning that system? Am I set up to be a part of that system or am I set up to fail, you know, because with that, you'll also see the hollowing out of the middle class. You know, um, I feel like there was once a time in this country where you could work a nine to five job and expect that that would provide you with a home, you know, you could take care of a family, you'd have benefits and you could expect to uh, retire, you know, and live and live the American dream on a modest income. You're not going to be living in a castle or sitting on a yacht, but you'll be able to like, you know, live a decent life. And then as we get into a place where it seems like that becomes less and less possible, you start to ask yourself, why? Why is, why, why is this generation different than previous generations? Because I think every generation believes that like they're the generation that got screwed. You know, that's sort of like that's, that's we all want to believe that our generation was the hardest. But, you know, this generation, like you said, you know, if you were born after the year 2000, all you've seen is a lot of, a lot of trauma. All you've seen is a lot of um, instability, you know, about what tomorrow looks like, you know? And so whether that is comes as concentrated wealth, the rise of the 1%, or maybe you want to talk about global warming, you know, and climate change and our reaction or lack of reaction and response to that, add in social media to kind of throw some gasoline on the fire and like look at, portrayals of unattainable lifestyles, you know, and then feel bad about yourself because you don't have that or feel pressure to be a part of it. All these things, you know, at college debt, that's really keeping people down. These are all things that seem to be happening to this generation. 
in a way it's never happened before. Like there's new and improved ways to keep people down and it's happening a lot. And I feel like this, so our song, Nowhere Generation, our album is kind of like this, look at that. And it's like, a. I think it's the first time I really had a lot of sympathy towards the anxieties and fears of younger people. And I say younger people, but obviously everything I've mentioned, that's going to affect everybody, you know? And so that's kind of where Nowhere Generation resists the urge to have a hard defined line because I'm, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm a younger generation X maybe, but I have peers who are dealing with a lot of, a lot of these same things. Yeah. And I start thinking about how many things that I rely on to be in place to live the life that I want. And these are things that I'm all very grateful for, but you Mm -hmm. know, I wake up in a home. Well, I wake up, you know, to begin with, (laughs) I wake up and I have health that has been facilitated by opportunities towards having food and having healthcare. I live in a house that provides me shelter and safety. If I think about needing some time to myself, I have a place, you know, a room that I can go to where I can just get a little distance. I've in the middle of this pandemic, I have access to income. I can contact people through the internet. And I haven't even just in this conversation, I haven't even gotten to doing anything yet. Mm-hmm, right. right. And when I think about how many of those things are predicated on my having certain privilege, my having certain advantages, my having access to things, my being the beneficiary of what are otherwise disparities, mm. it's a rabbit hole that is very difficult to go down because you realize that there are people that wake up and they don't have any or all of those things. And then you question yourself like, well, how are people supposed to get through? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think and what you're talking about is the structure of our life and the structures that, that prop our lives up, you know? And so we are a combination of our agency and the structures around us, you know, the structures that, that make up who we are. So like our structure is like uh, maybe your gender or your your race, the neighborhood you grew up in, um, your family, your income level, like all those things are part of like the structure. And your agency is like your own free will, like the things you do yourself, the things you decide to do when you wake up and all of that, what you decide to do with all that, because you could decide to do nothing with all that, you know, you could just go back to sleep, <laughs> you know, and so, but you do something with that. And so that's your agency. And that's what the push and pull I think is happening nowadays is we're talking a lot about agency and we're talking a lot about structure, but we can't, I think we can't talk about structure without talking about agency. And we can't talk about agency without talking about structure, you know? And I think that like a lot of people today, we'll talk about one or the other, you know? So if, if you are successful, it is because you are part of a unlevel playing field, you know? And you did nothing to get there, which isn't entirely true. You know what I mean? Like we are a part of an unlevel playing field, but you did something to get there, you know, or on the flip side of that coin, I can't get anywhere because the structure is weighted against me, whether it's race, gender, whatever. And that's, and the, the, the idea that the structure is weighted against you isn't, is entirely true. It is, but you still have some agency and some choice, you know? And so that's the, the yin and yang, the push and pull that we're always kind of, uh, we're always kind of dealing with. I remember I was 
uh, I was walking my dog and I have a neighbor who's a lot older than me. He's like a business guy. He's like vaguely aware that I'm in a band and that, that it's a successful band and that, you know, he's a business guy. He started a business. He does well. And we live in the same neighborhood. So he's always like, he's like, well, you must be doing something right. You know, if we're living here in the same neighborhood and I go, you know, I've had a lot of, a lot of luck in my life. You know, I think I said, I kind of said, we were just having a casual conversation. You know, we weren't really getting into it. I was like, I've been really lucky, you know, but he got, he got really serious on me and he was like, you, you know what, Tim, you make your own luck, you know? And it's kind of like, um, I could tell where he was going with it. And this guy's a little probably more on like the right wing side of thing. His thing was like, he didn't want me to think of myself as lucky. He wanted me to think of myself as someone who worked really hard to get where I was because he wanted to think of himself as someone who worked really hard to get where I was. And I'm not discounting, you know what I mean? That like, A, I was lucky, but B, I also, you know, I worked really hard to get where I was. But I think for some people, they don't want to admit the, admit the structures and the institutions that prop them up to get where they are, the things that privilege them to get where they are. Uh, they think by admitting that, it's sort of like admitting that like they cheated somehow. But I think I feel like we can we have to admit it. We have to talk about it, basically. Yeah, and what one of the things that you're describing is, you know, you think about how wonderful the broader system would be if we were, for lack of better saying it, constantly talking about both. You know, mm-hmm. like constantly talking about, hey, how can we empower people from the ground up to mm-hmm. to do their best within the context of a system, and then how do we, from, from lack of better saying it, from kind of like the top down, create a system that maximizes people's ability to be empowered? Right. And that conversation and that kind of social discourse done in a constructive way would almost always work, at least to a degree. It doesn't mean it'll always work for everybody, but it, it, will, it will work as best as possible. Yeah. And well- I don't even know if I should say that, but it it has, it's working better than what we have now, which is, it seems as though it's just like you said, it's like these entrenched views as though, Mm -hmm. you know, saying that someone has privilege, if you, you know, if you say that's taking away from your accomplishment, well, imagine the person who's had to live without that privilege is feeling, you know, you're talking about to some degree, taking something of of a self-esteem hit, which I don't even believe is necessary. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about someone who actually didn't have the opportunity to do that. And mm-hmm. then it gets into that. Everybody gets entrenched. And it's, it's some of the stuff that you were talking about in that video, which is, well, what happens next? Right. Exactly. It's, t- it's talking about what happens next. What does tomorrow look like? What are the conversations that we need to have? And how do we sort of like bridge this gap You know, between like personal responsibility and the institutions that were that were kind of like I said before corralled into every day and it's all about kind of I think it's all about just having those tough conversations admitting to each other where we're at acknowledging where hard work has played a role you know in all those things and and, and like you said it's about creating as many outcomes for success as possible because I think that we want to live in a world that has a level playing field, you know, and we don't, in my opinion, that we don't live in a world with a level playing field. Like I live in Chicago, you know what I mean? I live in one of the most segregated cities in the North uh, half of America. You know, I see 
like disadvantage. I see an advantages. You could see it like it really is very stark if you just drove through my city. You can see neighborhoods where it's like it would be really tough for a person to get out of this neighborhood or to find success in this neighborhood, you know? And then you see neighborhoods where it's like, and this neighborhood, I mean, it's, it's, you're set up for success. You know, it's like, there's enough, there's enough people and networks here where like, if you want something, it's just there for um, the taking. So some people see the not level playing field. Some people say, Oh no, it is level playing fields. And if you're, if you can't succeed and it's your own damn fault. And some people know it's not a level playing field, but they're threatened by the idea of it being a level playing field. You know, I think they think that there's like, there's a finite amount of spots on the boat, you know, and we got to make sure that we have those spots and us and we, us and ours, you know, get those spots. And I think that's a, it's a dangerous way to think, but I also think it's wrong. I think that like, there are not a finite amount of spots. You know what I mean? Like success is success and people who become successful, there's a, there's room for all of them in my opinion, you know? And I think about, um, there was, was it Malcolm Gladwell? Maybe it was, um, it was a Malcolm Gladwell book. And, and I think it was about, it was the one that 10,000 hours came out of. So, and he was talking about uh, sort of those level playing fields and he was using it junior hockey as, as the example. I don't know if you read this at all, but um, junior hockey in Canada, it was like, they were, they were um, letting kids in like most youth sports by their birth date, you know? So if you're born on these dates to this date, you got into junior hockey. And if you were after those birthdays, then you got into something else. And they were realizing that like the kids that were the oldest, you know, were disproportionately more successful, you know, and the way it works is that if you were more successful, you were kind of handpicked and maybe played on the better team. And, and the kids that were younger were disproportionately uh, unsuccessful. And he was advocating for changing that system and uh, making it more fair. And so there were a lot of parents being like, no, that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? Like you either, you either succeed or you don't, you know, we can't give everybody a trophy, et cetera, et cetera. It's that that's the way hockey is going to be. And what he was saying, he's like, I don't want to create two leagues so we can give everybody a trophy. I'm saying I can create twice as many amazing Canadian hockey players as you're creating now. That's what he was arguing. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before about just the history of, of Chicago. And, you know, one of the things that is very noticeable about certain genres of music is mm-hmm. that there was, and I think a lot of artists experienced this in general, was that almost every successful artist that I've ever talked to at some point was in a situation in which the idea of them being a successful artist was something that was simply not supported around them. I mean, there were definitely people who, you know, they they got music lessons, they got art lessons, there was maybe passive acceptance, but most people's parents are not sitting there being like, yes, you know, and most schools are not like, yes, you know, you're singing in the corner during class. That's amazing. Like we want you to pursue your art. And the artists have a sense of, pushing through different boundaries like that. Once they know what they want, creating a community that's going to support this. I think this particularly in, you know, genres that were maybe a little bit more marginalized, whether it's hip hop or hardcore or metal. And there's this basic sense of you want, like you said, more top level players. You don't want Mm -hmm. less. You don't want fewer. Like you want more people 
who are mm-hmm. in bands. You want more people who are doing zines, more people who are starting independent labels. And so what I found is that for some reason, a lot of the artists who come from those backgrounds seem to fundamentally understand this point that you're describing from the Malcolm Gladwell book. Yeah, more is better. You know what I mean? Because you want to create more outcomes for success. And and not everyone's going to be able to take advantage of that. Not every one of those hockey players are going to be amazing. But if you just create more opportunities to to more chances, you know, and I guess more importantly, if you don't disadvantage someone just because of their birth date, don't disadvantage someone just because of the zip code they were born in, you know, or the family they were born in, or their skin color, their gender, their socioeconomic status, you know, all those things to disadvantage them is to do a disservice to just humanity in general, really, you know, like nobody wants to live in that world. And, and music is, it's sort of the same way, you know, like, like, and even just the way we, like we treat music culturally is different from country to country. And I, I didn't even grow up in a musical family. And even doing this band, it's like when you when you're going to college and you're deciding what you want to do, and you maybe you have one kid decides I want to go into finance because I want to work on Wall Street and I want I want to be successful in my life. I want to go into business, you know, or or whatever. And his buddy goes, I want to get a social work degree and I want to go like help people in developing countries. You know, like clearly the guy was going into finance like he has a goal and that goal involves success and it certainly involves money you know and the guy doing the the social work degree he's sort of foregoing that like he's not living in a fantasy that he's somehow going to be a billionaire social worker you know he's he's acknowledging that but he's like i'm gonna follow my passion and do it anyway and what's interesting about rise against is like i didn't ever i never saw a pathway to like success with this band you know in that way I just thought it's something I wanted to do. And so in a way I was making a decision. I was foregoing that sort of success that you might have the, like the white picket fence in the house and the family. I was foregoing that because that's what I saw. That's what I saw bands as, as like these crazy long shots, you know? And so to find that the band then snowballed into what we are, it's made me think a lot about who I was when I was making that decision at like 20. Was I right? Was I wrong? Like, I, I thought I was foregoing success, you know, but the band snowballed into what it is. And so it makes me, when I, when some, when a young person asks me like, what, what should I do and what should I be doing? Or what did you do? It makes me rethink a lot of like my own, you know, 19 year old strategy, whatever a 19 year old strategy could ever be. But like, it makes me, it makes me reflect on that. It's like, well, I thought I was foregoing this success, but I wasn't. And now I feel like I want to tell people like really just follow your passion, you know, because you don't, you don't want success without happiness. You know, that's like, that's not a fun place to be. You want happiness. So if you have an itch that you're trying to scratch, like you might be trying to scratch that itch for the rest of your life if you don't do it now. So let's, let's talk about that idea because one of the things that is, well, let let me, let me, let me take even a step farther back. Sure. Looking at your success is that you now know to a certain degree that the decision was validated, whether it's because you're successful commercially in some ways or whether just because it's been a passion-filled life and career. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, though, going back to before you knew that things would work out the way that they had, how did you know to do that? Because that's a very risky 
gamble to, I mean, with like, with, as an example, with the social work degree. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's easier about that with all due respect to my, mm-hmm. my, my colleagues in social work is right. that chances are, you know, that you're going to have a job. Yeah, that's true. Chances are, you know, that you're going to build a career, you're going to build, have, have benefits. You're going to, you know, build maybe even like a retirement fund. You, once you have that degree, you can, you're, there's a certain social mobility that you have. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's there. Right. But with, with music, there's none of that. I mean, you, you right. don't have any guarantees. And so I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like, how did you consider the possibility of like, did you say, I'm going to do this full time? Did you say, I'm going to have a day job? Like, how did you go into that with those risks? Yeah. None of it was even as calculated as that. You know, it was, it was just this drive that like, when I woke up in the morning, this is what I wanted to do. Like, this was my drive to do it. it was to pick up a guitar, to write songs, to go see bands, to learn from them, learn from their shows, watch it. It was just this passion, you know, like I really, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and I went to school in the city, but I went to school in the city because I just wanted to be closer to shows. I want to be closer to the clubs and the places that was happening. And which is what I did. You know, I went to shows like five nights a week and some parts of me didn't even care who was playing. I just wanted to go see it and be a part of it. I always thought it was just this kind of like hobby thing on the side, just my interest. And I was still in school and trying to like figure out what I was going to do with my life. What I didn't realize was happening. And I realize now is that the things that I was doing after school, that, that was my passion. You know, I, I never took them seriously as like something I would still be doing 25 years later, but like that was my passion. Um, I went to those shows and I came back home and I wrote songs and then, you know, gathered friends together and we started bands and we did shows. We made t-shirts and we'd play shows around the Midwest and in college towns and we buy crappy vans and try to do shows and do what you did that whole thing. And it was, when I look back, it was kind of like this sort of guiding light that was just always there. It wasn't something I ever even questioned. It was like, this is what I love to do. If you were to give me a free time, this is what I'm doing with it. And so as I got older and the Chicago scene that I was in, it started kind of filtering out the people that were not serious and were moving on with their lives. And then the people that were still serious about it um, and pretty good at it were still around. That's when I found my guys, you know, people that were like, I don't know, I guess like the cream of the crop in a way, you know, the guys that were still around, they'd yet to like go away to school to pursue a degree somewhere or start a family, whatever. They were still like, no, man, I still want to do this. Like, I still want to write songs. And that's when you, yeah, I feel like I was now with serious people who wanted to do a serious band, at least give it a shot, you know, and see if it, if it worked out, you know, and, and luckily it did. But I think part of that comes from the people I was with, you know, Joe and Brandon and Zach and the band we started and then our commitment to it to at least give it a, like, you know, the old college try to like really go hard at it. And we all worked jobs while we started because you had to pay the bills because the band wasn't paying the bills. There was definitely a time where like we'd save up money to go on tour, you know, because tour time away from your job was money you were losing. And tour was not a place you were oftentimes making money. When I think back, especially as a father now of like, I have, a, I have two teenage daughters. When I think back on it, Sometimes I think I look back on it as an adult, like, 
whoa, how irresponsible were we? <laughs> you know what I mean, like it almost gives me like panic attacks to like, man, you had no plan, did you? You know, but I also never, it was never a question. It was just like, we're just going to do this. And I think that that's not something everybody always finds. I think that like at that age of your life, you're questioning a lot of things. I had no question. It was like, I'm going to do this. Please get out of my way. Like I have to do this. I don't know what else to do. I don't care if money comes from it. I don't care if anything comes from it. I just know that this is what I have to do. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight till I do it. You want to connect people to their passions. You want to connect yourself to your passion. You want to figure out ways to do that. That's kind of like, like to use like a sports analogy. You want to put a baseball bat in a kid's hand, but then you want to put a basketball in a kid's hand. You want to put a, a hockey stick, you know what I mean? Or like maybe it's cross country or running or lacrosse. You want to like, do you want to do everything? And then one of them is going to be like, oh, I'm kind of into this. Oh, I'm kind of, I kind of have a knack for this. And like, not only am I kind of good at it, but like, I have a love for it maybe, you know? And so you want to do that in all aspects of life. You want to like, you want to try everything out and find the thing that connects to you, connects you to it. And don't, and, and you don't want to dismiss it because um, you see Michael Jordan and you're like, oh, well, I'll never be that, you know, or I don't like, oh, as a guitar player, I don't want like, there's way better guitar players than me out there. And you don't want to like see them like, oh, well, I'm, I'll never be that. So I don't want to do that. It's like about finding the, finding the thing that you're into that I think that that's the hardest part, you know, is like, cause some people just give up on it before they start. They don't see it as a reality. Or maybe they don't even discover the thing that they, that they were going to be into cause they didn't, you know, take that leap and try and, and do it and try and like and fail for the most part too. Like you're going to try things, you're going to fail at them and you're going to figure out what you're into and what you're not into. And so that's like, especially as, even as I'm raising kids, how do you, how do you raise kids to, to follow their passions and to figure out what it is that they want um, without also being too overbearing about it either, you know, and like trying to like, you know, I want them to connect to their passions the same way I connected to my passion, but it's a, such a tricky, a tricky thing, you know, cause I think that even like my, like my parents were supportive in like their ambivalence to what I was doing. You know what I mean? They never dismissed it or discouraged it, but they were kind of always like, I don't know. I don't get what it is you're doing, but okay. You know what I mean? And I look back on it too. And I'm like, man, it would have been, it probably would have really, had they been overly supportive, it might've screwed me up. You know what I mean? Like my first guitar was a crappy guitar. You know what I mean? My first, the place we practiced was, was the basement with a bunch of like couch cushions shoved around the windows. You know, like our first recordings were done when a boom box and a cassette and a towel over the boom box and we pushed record, you know? Like if my dad came in and he didn't have the means to do this, but if my dad came in and was like, I'm going to put you in a professional recording studio downtown. I'm going to get you the best guitar. I'm going to buy all your friends, the top gear. And I'm going to get a coach in here to teach you guys how to do all this stuff. You know what I mean? And like, Oh, and a buddy of mine owns the club down the street and I'm going to make sure he would have ruined it all. You know what I mean? He would have wrecked it all for us, you know, and he would have been meaning well, he would have been trying hard. He would have been, it would have been him showing his love for like, and his support but he would have wrecked it all for us. Cause we would have punk and hardcore has nothing to do with any of those things. You know what I mean? Like you'd be made fun of if you brought in, if you were walked in to the show with the brand new van and your brand new gear and your dad got you the show, you know? And so even as a parent, I'm like, how do I encourage my girls to like be who they are? Not, but not do too much. You know what I mean? Not get overly involved in their life because that what can like really tamper with the, the process in the same way. And, 
Well, that is a definitely a good sentiment to end on and just appreciate you coming on and uh, yeah, man. taking the time to talk. These are, you know, these are, uh, these are important ideas and I appreciate you sharing them. And I know that a lot of people, you know, a lot of people help formulate what they're thinking and connect with it in part, you know, connect to your music in part because of that. Yeah. I mean, it's an awesome opportunity, you know, like we, we have amazing fans and they're all engaged and, you know, we don't even all see eye to eye and all the same things, but I love meeting a rise against fan. I have not met one that I don't love yet. Even if we're on different sides of the fence, because I meet thoughtful people um, who've, who've thought about these things and have questions and they want to talk about it and, and they care when you care. That's a, that's a good place to start. Well, listen, best of luck with everything. And I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Absolutely. We'll see the show sometime. All right. Absolutely. So there you have it. Tim McElrath of Rise Against talking about how we can build the life that we want, both by empowering ourselves and each other to find agency to make changes in our life and to challenge the structures that exist that interfere with people having the opportunities they need to live an authentic and fulfilling life. And these concepts that Tim discusses are so very much in line with core humanistic principles that everyone has value. And it is our goal as individuals to work towards our purpose in life and to help others to do the same. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, hardcore humans. See you next time.